Hello and welcome to this podcast. Sorry, it's been uh, quite a while since the last podcast. I've uh, been quite busy traveling and also making another podcast as well, which is for UCCF uh, Evangelism Podcast. Um, this month we're going to be looking at how can we find hope in a troubled world and uh, you're going to hear a talk in just a moment or two. Uh, remember that you can stay in touch by getting onto the website www.myspace.com forward slash the mystery tent and you can email me through that and uh, I look forward to hearing your comments as well and uh, good to see that uh, quite a few of you are downloading uh, the different podcasts on here and hopefully you enjoy this one as this one has been so long in coming so uh, please stay in touch and hopefully enjoy this we're hearing about more and more problems aren't we every day when we turn the news on we've got more and more issues and problems in society whether it's terrorist attacks like the one that happened in Glasgow not long ago or whether it's attempts on uh, terrorist attacks on London or whether it's um, people being involved in killings uh, by killing people with knives or whether it's um, as we heard yesterday of a young person with learning difficulties who was killed in Sunderland by a group of uh, a mob of young people or of course whether it's an 11 year old boy who was shot dead for doing nothing and we have to ask ourselves in many ways what's going on with the world what is the problem what are the issues that are causing this and so as we turn on our TVs and as or we listen to the radio we hear politicians asking the question What is the answer? What can we do? What is the problem? We hear people saying, well, what's the solution to this? Maybe we need to put more police on the streets. Maybe we need to um, get politicians involved in sorting things out with gun crimes. And all these things are good. Maybe we need to have more youth clubs. Maybe we need to change this or change that. But I want to suggest this morning that the key problem of why we're living in a troubled world is ultimately because the problem lies with us and our hearts and our rebellion and it relies in the fact that relationships have been broken and we see the distortion and the destruction and the destructive nature of what the Bible calls sin because the reality is is that if we think to ourselves that somehow the world is getting better, that the world is a great place, that somehow we're evolving and developing and academically we're getting brighter and we're getting stronger and we're getting bigger, then the reality is, is we just need to turn our TV sets on, don't we? We just need to put the radio on and recognise that there are more and more problems and issues and difficulties and heartache and disruption in the world that we live in. And we've got to say to ourselves, is there an answer? Is there an answer to these problems? We can't put our head in the sand. There's obviously problems and issues. I think the the key problem is the Bible tells us is that we are born with, if you like, a virus called sin. We all know what it is, or maybe if we don't have a computer, we know of what it is to hear about a computer that has a virus on it. 
You know, if you have a PC, you have that problem. If you have a Mac and you're educated in these things, you probably don't have a problem with viruses, okay? There is an answer to these viruses. It's called a Mac. But the problem is, is that when we get a virus on the computer, we can let it stay on our computer and it can corrupt and corrode our files and it can effectively mean that our computer is worthless because it just ends up becoming a useless piece of plastic that can't do anything. But as human beings, we've been affected by a virus that the Bible calls sin. And so as human beings, we've been made in the image of God. That we've been made in that image, but we've been affected by sin. That this virus, if you like, is part of our DNA. That we all have it. That we have to do something about it. And so this rebellion towards God is part of our spiritual DNA, if you like. As Adam and Eve, way back, disobeyed in the garden and and had a choice. They disobeyed God. And so that rebellious act caused this virus of sin to come into our DNA, as it were. And sin has spoiled who we are. Sin is not just some kind of archaic religious term that we use. It's not some kind of religious Christian thing that Christians just talk about. But sin is a reality in our world and in our lives today. Because sin has spoiled who we are. We're not who we were supposed to be. And so the way that we treat one another is a result of sin and rebellion. The way that we say harsh words towards one another is a a result of, of sin. The way that we show anger or the way that other people show anger to us is an outworking of sin. The way that we envy what other people have is again an outworking of this this corruptive nature that we have. The way that we might be jealous towards people or harbour bitterness is all an outworking of sin. It's a reality of what is known and is described by the Bible as rebellion towards God. And this hatred that we see on a macro scale as opposed to the micro scale that we see in our own lives is shown in the world through the fact that we have wars going on all over the place. We have problems in our culture where 11 year old boys are getting shot, where sociologists and where politicians and where people who study society at large, academics, simply don't know what to do because it seems as if it's got out of hand. Because society seems to have broken down. Now I'm not being naive about this. I know that this has happened over generations and generations and centuries. Where there's been all kinds of problems. And people might say, oh well it needs to be like the good old days. Well even in the good old days, there was still envy and bitterness and anger. And hatred towards people and wars. So this problem is not a new thing. But we ultimately see it in its origin as being caused by the fact that there's this vertical relationship that we have with God that's been broken because of our rebellion. And as a result of that relationship being broken, our horizontal relationships with each other have been broken. And so therefore there's disharmony. And so this problem of sin has come in to who we are and what we're about. Now I want to read a description of this in the Bible because this will hopefully hopefully help us understand this um, a bit more. And uh, I'm going to read from John 8, it's on the screen or you can turn to your Bibles. Um, John 8 verses 1 to 13. And ultimately this is again describing the effects of sin but how we respond to that as human beings, how we react to it. Okay? So John 8, 1 to 13. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him. 
and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought in a woman called in, caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down on the ground with his finger, and when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this time those who heard began to go away one at a time, and the older ones, fir- the older ones first, until only Jesus was left standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked, and asked the woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So we're faced with this narrative, this story, where Jesus meets this woman. And all these religious leaders completely know the law inside out, back to front. They know exactly how to dot the I and cross the T. And they know that this woman has committed adultery. And they say, therefore, what she deserves is to be stoned. Now, when we think about stones, you might go to a beach somewhere and you you pick up little tiny pebbles and you skim them across the water. But often in Jesus' day, when people were stoned, it would be more like bits of rubble like this that were picked up and people were absolutely pummeled by stones. They were beaten to a pulp. It wasn't just like somebody was kind of throwing a stone like that. Oh, got you on the head there. Oh, got you on the knee. I'm sure that that one hurts. This was a, a horrific death. And so what they were threatening this woman with is is for people to go up and pick bricks and and rubble and to absolutely pummel this woman to death because they were effectively saying that you're not as good as us because you have disobeyed because you've committed adultery and therefore you've broken the law and what you deserve is death. And Jesus in this situation is being completely countercultural and going against what maybe many of us would think. And he's saying, well listen, if any of you without sin then then come ahead you know cast the first stone you come ahead and throw the first stone if you're without sin come and throw the first stone and of course all these religious leaders that were standing there all there with their PhDs as it were all knowing about the inside out of the, the law and religious thinking began to examine their own hearts and their own thinking and of course realised quite quickly that they were jealous people or envious or that they'd maybe cheated people or that they'd somehow slipped up and disobeyed God and slowly but in a kind of agonising way I'm sure they turned away from that scene and walked away from the crowd and one by one started to walk away effectively saying well of course I'm not without sin and the only people that were left in that situation were Jesus and the woman and Jesus was left in that situation of course because Jesus is perfect being the son of God is without sin and so therefore standing in that situation with the woman says to the woman now leave your life of sin now I want us to imagine ourselves in that situation imagine if we were in the crowd 
And Jesus was saying that to us. Well, if you think you're so good, if you think you're so great, if you think you're so sorted, if you don't need me, if somehow you think that you're better than this person, then come on, throw the first stone. If you're without sin, then throw the first stone. And the reality is, is that without God's forgiveness, without knowing Christ, none of us, of course, can be worthy enough to say that we can pick up the the stone and throw it at somebody else, that somehow we are without sin. And so the Bible is telling us that in reality, all of us have sinned. And we might think to ourselves, well, I'm not that bad a person. I've not done this or that. But the reality is is that the Bible is telling us through this story that all of us have sinned, that all of us have messed up, that none of what we do is good enough in order to be um, in God's presence. Because God is a holy God. And because he's holy, he cannot be in the presence of of things that are unholy and sinful. And so there needs to be an answer and a solution. There needs to be forgiveness that takes place. So where is the hope for us in a troubled world? In many ways this sounds like the bad news, that there's problems going on in the world, there's issues going on in the world, there's difficulties going on in the world. We see the problem of sin as the Bible tells us, We see that this situation was one where people were not good enough and so they couldn't throw the first stone. So where is the hope? Where is the solution? How do we find this peace, this hope that goes beyond all understanding? Well, ultimately, I believe that the Bible teaches us that this hope that we find in a troubled world is is found through the cross. That it's only by Jesus' death on the cross that we can really truly find what real hope is and this might seem a bit of a paradox because on the one hand when we think about Jesus on the cross we might say well that's that's a bit of a hopeless situation how can we find hope when Jesus died on the cross and obviously that he found himself in a particularly hopeless situation to the onlookers that were looking because when Jesus was beaten And when he was punched and he was spat upon and when he was mocked by people and as he went on the cross there were people who were saying well if you think you're so good then call down all the legion of angels and save yourself. And so from a human point of view looking at this person who they thought might do something might make a change looking at Jesus at the cross it seemingly looked like it was a hopeless situation. Well, what good is that? What good is it for Jesus to be on the cross? How is that going to make a difference? Well, there is absolute hope that comes through the cross beyond any other hope that we can imagine. And so as Jesus went on the cross and suffered and and died that agonising death, he did it for a reason. And I want to read just a short excerpt from a book called The Case for Christ, which is a journalist's personal investigation into the evidence for Jesus. So as we're investigating the Christian faith and as this guy investigated it and cross-examined various different people, he spoke to people about the cross and what that might have been like in Jesus' day. And so it says in this section, the Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. They were driven through the wrists. Methril said, pointing out about an inch or so below his left palm. The pain was absolutely unbearable, he continued. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating. Literally, 
excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that, that they needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish during the crucifixion. And at the cause of death, it says, after managing to exhale, this is what would happen as somebody is, is crucified. After managing to exhale, the person would then uh, be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push himself up on the cross to exhale, scraping his bloody back against the coarse wood of the cross. And this would go on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. And so this would happen to people in Jesus' day, and it happened, of course, to Jesus. That as he was on the cross, it wasn't just as Jesus was there saying, well, I'll be a, a good example. I'll be a good martyr. I'll show people that I'm dying an unjust death. As Jesus died on the cross, he faced the reality and the pain of the suffering for a reason as he died on the cross and those five to seven inch nails were driven through him as he pulled himself up in agony trying to get a last breath as he went on and he he kept doing that and he suffered and he, he was in agony and he pulled himself up and more and more exhaustion took place and as eventually he would die in suffocation leading to a cardiac arrest dying of a heart attack because of the pressure on his heart as he died on the cross in that pain and agony He died and he did that for a reason, in order that we might have hope. As he died on that cross, he took on the punishment and the sin that I deserve and that you deserve. He took on the punishment and the judgment that was caused towards me, that God's anger and God's wrath that I deserve as someone that's guilty, who's messed up, as I deserve that, Jesus took that on himself. So just in the situation as somebody needs to pay the price for a crime. So if somebody was to come uh, to one of your neighbours and to shoot one of your neighbours in the middle of the night, you would want to see justice done because that person has wronged your neighbour. And so therefore a penalty has to take place. A price has to be paid. That that person who shot your neighbour needs to serve time and justice needs to take place. In the same way, because there has been sin towards God, justice needs to be paid. A price needs to be paid. And so rather than us doing that, the scandalous thing about the cross is is that Jesus says, I will come down to earth. I will get my hands dirty. I will be in a amongst you I will live amongst you I will love you and I will heal you and I will pour out my mercy upon you and I will go to a horrible ugly death on the cross in order that the price that you deserve to pay will be be paid by me in order that you have hope and so as people looked at a potentially hopeless situation Jesus was dying on that cross in order that we might have hope in order that we might have new life in order that we might be forgiven in order that we might be justified, that the price that we deserve to pay will be paid by Jesus and can be paid by no other. Okay, let's flick back to John 3.16 as we read at the beginning. John 3.16 and 18. And this just expounds a bit more of what we're thinking about in terms of the hope through the cross 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So not only is the cross about paying the price that we deserve, not only is the cross about justifying us and setting us free in that way, but it's also about rescuing us. And so we know what it's like, don't we, when we hear about a rescue helicopter that's gone to uh, save people. Just yesterday as I was driving up, there was uh, one of the RAF helicopters flying around Aviemore over the forest because there were some young people lost in the forest. And so rather than those young people who were found by the helicopter saying, oh well, we're lost and uh, there's a helicopter, well, we'll just ignore it. If they're lost, they want to be found. Or if someone's out at sea and a boat comes to rescue them and they say, well, no thanks, I don't want to be rescued. And then a helicopter comes along and they say, well, no thanks, I don't want to be rescued. People that recognise that they are lost and in need of hope and rescue will be rescued. And so therefore, as Jesus came, as God sent his only son, he came on a rescue mission, as it were, to save those who were lost. And so all of us who are sinful people, rebellious towards God, who have not uh, asked for forgiveness, are lost. We're either found in God or we're lost. And so he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son and that's a stark reality that this isn't just some kind of ideology this isn't some kind of well if you like it and it does good for you and it makes you feel better than just you know think about Christianity that actually Christianity can improve your life it's like the cherry on top of the cake it's something just to be added some nice kind of sweetener that will kind of sweeten up your life you've got an alright life at the moment the reality is is that we're being told here that we are being rescued by God's son because what we deserve is punishment and judgment and what I deserve is to be in a lost eternity without God that the Bible calls hell and that sounds a horrible ugly thing to say in our day and age but the reality of what the Bible is talking about and what I'm talking about is this that it's not just a lifestyle choice being a Christian But it's being found in God. It's being rescued. It's having our hope that we are absolutely lost. That we're drowning. We're struggling. We're absolutely at sea in need of a saviour. And so we come and we say, I'm lost and I need you. And I need to be rescued. It's not a lifestyle choice. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll I'll live as a Christian. Maybe I'll be obedient to what God calls me to do. Maybe I'll get involved in mission. Maybe I'll, I'll live for him in the workplace. Maybe I won't. That as God has come and rescued us, he's taken us from a complete and utter distraught situation. And this is so serious that he sent his son to do it, to die on a cross. That we might be given new life. And be found in him. And be rescued and loved by him. And shown his great love and his great mercy. And so we deserve this punishment. But Jesus has come and has taken this upon himself. In 1 John 1, 5 um, to 10 in that, that section. But in verse 9 it says. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's the incredible thing about God, is that he's willing to send his son to die for us and to rescue us. But what he wants is for us to respond to him by confessing our sins. And sometimes in our lives, when we think about, whether it's thinking about becoming a Christian or living as a Christian, that there's an unnecessary fear of God in the wrong sense. Because it's almost as if somehow we don't feel good enough to come towards God. That somehow, for whatever reason, we make excuses and put up a barrier towards coming towards God. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at a a youth camp in Dundee called Team Ranch, and there was a girl who had heard a number of talks in the week, a couple of girls, and one of the girls said to me, I don't think I'm good enough to become a Christian. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I've, I've done all those things that you were talking about. I've been wrong in my heart and I've disobeyed and I've hurt people and I've done this. I'm just not good enough to become a Christian. And she was absolutely serious. I said, well, it's not about how good we think we are, but it's about how good God is and how he wants us to ask for forgiveness. Because he recognises that he didn't come for those who think they're good and think they're healthy. He came for the sick and the lost and those in need of him. And so he's come to save us and rescue us. And so he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Some people think, well, you know, when we come to God, if we ask for forgiveness, if we approach God's um, throne, if you like, if we come to him and say, oh, you know, I confess my sins, I need forgiveness, that that somehow God might say, well, yeah, I know what you're like. Mm. Give me a couple of weeks, I'll get back to you. I need to kind of work on you. Or, well, yeah, you're a bit tricky, give me a couple of months, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I can forgive you. But the reality is, is that Jesus said, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. It's not a game. What he wants is for us to enter into a relationship, to be humble, to get rid of pride and to bow the knee and say, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm, I need your forgiveness and I know that you will purify me. And that I will be righteous in you. I will be made right before you as I take that step and as I live for you in your power. So God is faithful. And there's a sense in which for us in our culture we're very instantaneous aren't we? And so the Bible talks about seeking and finding God. That we need to hunt after God. That we need to search after God. That we need to hunger after God. And so whether we're not a Christian this morning or whether we are, there's a sense in which what God wants us to do is to constantly be aware of where we are in terms of we've been nothing without him and he's brought us into a relationship with him and he wants us to seek him and seek him and seek him. And we'd almost be seen adopting an attitude of click and you will find, you know, get on the mouse, click and you will find. That's where we find knowledge, isn't it? We click and we go on Google and we get knowledge. We click and we go on the internet and we buy something off eBay. We click and we we obtain things instantaneously. But what God wants us to be is seek and you will find. Seek after me. Search after me. Desire to go deeper into who I am in order that you might truly find me and that we will find true forgiveness in him. And so as we move to a close 
I guess the question that I want to ask us is, who is the pilot of your life? Because there's a sense in which, for many of us, whether we're a Christian or not, there's, there's always a battle going on in terms of pride and in times of self-sufficiency. What we want to do, what we think is best. And so God wants us to not only recognise that he can be our saviour, but he also wants to be our Lord. That means that he wants to be Lord and in control of every area of our life because it makes sense for God to be Lord of our lives. So that he wants to be Lord of our relationships, that he wants to be Lord of our finances, of how we work, of how we think, of how we demonstrate our lives, how we interact with one another. He wants to be Lord in, in, in our family situations. He wants to be Lord in the stress and the difficulties that we face in life. He wants to be Lord in our suffering. He wants to be Lord in the joys that we have. He wants to be Lord in the good times that we have. He wants to be Lord when we play sport, when we play music, when we create art. He wants us to, to be Lord when we watch TV. He wants to be Lord when we go to the cinema. He wants to be Lord in every area of our lives. And there's a difference between just saying, okay, Lord, be saviour. I want, I want to be saved. I want to be rescued. And then actually saying, no, I want you to be effectively the pilot of my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And the ludicrous thing is, is that what we do is, for some reason, we think that even though we don't know how to fly a plane, as it were, it's almost like, get out of the way, Jesus. I'm getting on the controls. I know how to fly this thing. And we don't, do we? That Jesus is all-knowing, pre-existent, Alpha and Omega is the beginning and the end. He knows everything about us, even before we were born. And wants to be the pilot of our lives, as it were. And yet sometimes we're saying, well, do you know what? I think I'm just going to get into the pilot's seat and I'm going to cruise along myself a bit. But he's saying, no... I want to rescue you, to save you, to forgive you, to give you a new life. But I want to be Lord of your life. And so I want to be in control for the right reason. Because I know all things. And I know what's best for you. And so as you seek me, you will find. And all these things will be added to you. So rather than us just saying, well, I'll do my own thing and I'll add a bit of God on Jesus plus Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. He says, no, I want it to be Jesus. I want me to be the focus of your life. And from that focus, you will know how to live life. You will know what life is all about because he is all knowing and eternal. So are we willing to put our hope and our trust in Jesus in a troubled world, will this mean that everything just disappears, all the troubles and all the suffering? No, of course it won't. But what it means is we will have focus and purpose and eternal focus and hope in God in amongst the sufferings and the difficulties. And it means also as we live out our lives, for those of us who are believing in the Lord and trusting in Him, that we will be salt and light and that in a world where there are many young people who don't have any fathers, that will be the fathers to those young people. Where In a world where there are many people who are angry and hurting and in many ways dysfunctional, that we will help people be functional, that we will stand beside the poor and the broken and the hurting, and that we will be the people who are salt and light 
because of what Christ has done in our lives. And it will be a natural overflow from the love that we have for him. And so I think we stand in interesting days. Days where people are looking for answers. Where is the hope in this troubled world? What can we do? How can we rectify things? And Jesus comes and says, you know, I am the light of the world. I have come in order that you might have life. You might have hope. And he wants us to enter into that relationship with him. And if we have entered into that relationship with him, he wants us to be that hope in the troubled world. As he lives in us and is the hope in our hearts. I hear you. I meet you. You are moving all around. Moving all around. Moving all.